Well, I realize I should probably start out by saying why I'm wearing different clothes today. <laughs> um, you know, just so you understand my philosophy for years has always been, you know, I, I want my clothes to be not at all distracting from the Word of God, so I'm just going to wear a super plain, same thing every week. And so that's always why I've always just worn the same black polo for years. And... What's happened, though, I, I actually get more comments about wearing the same black polo that I thought, man, that's actually becoming distracting. So I'm trying something new. We'll mix it up, and uh, we'll see how that goes. But that, that's the whole, that was the whole philosophy. Let's, let's not have clothes be a distraction. Uh, so now I'm going to be very fashionable. So. <laughs> oh, that's, that's that. Uh, anyhow. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the book of Ruth, uh, the Old Testament. Uh, that starts out with this, uh, this encounter, this narrative about this woman named Naomi and her family. Uh, her husband, Elimelech, uh, and her two sons, uh, Machlon and Kilion. They're Israelites. They live in Bethlehem. And there was a famine in the land of Israel uh, during that time. And uh, they did what was a no-no. They left Israel, and they went to a neighboring country, Moab. And not only did they go to Moab when, uh, during this time, but they stayed there for 10 years and then took Moabite wives, uh, their, their sons did. So everything about the story is they're, they're running away from Yahweh. So it's not good news. But then it just gets worse, because while they're there, uh, Elimelech dies, so now... Uh, Naomi is left widowed, and then eventually both Machlon and Kilion die. So now Naomi is off in Moabite country with no husband and no sons to care for her, and she's older. And she's distraught and decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem, back to Israel, because she had heard that God had provided food once again, so she's going to make the trip. And you know the story with uh, her, the, the one daughter-in-law, uh, Orpah, decided to stay in Moab because uh, Naomi urged them both to stay, but Ruth, of course, sticks with her, and that's where the story um, is going to follow uh, in the pages to come. But what happens when they get back to Israel, if you remember this scene, uh, all the people of the community gather around, and they're asking, is, is, is that Naomi? You know, she'd been gone for 10 years. That, that, that's Naomi, it's her. And if you remember what Naomi said, she, she told the people, don't call me that. Because Naomi means peace. Or, um, no, not peace, what is it? Somebody, whatever. Uh, what, what's that? Yeah, pleasant, there you go, yeah, yeah. We're, we were kind of around there. I don't know why that, a total lapse of memory. It means pleasant. And she says, don't, don't call me pleasant. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She says, you call me Mara because the Almighty has been bitter to me. And the hand of Yahweh is against me. He's testified against me. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. I like that those kind of statements are in the scriptures. Because I have those very same thoughts. There are times when I think in my heart, God has forgotten me. 
God has hidden his face from my life. God's hand is against me. I don't know why, but he is against me. There are times I have these thoughts that think somehow that this pipeline of God's power towards me has been cut off. He's just turned the valve right off. God's wisdom has been kept from me. I wonder if you have those thoughts. Or maybe, let me rephrase it. I know you have those thoughts. The question is, what do we do with those thoughts? You see, life in this world has a myriad of situations that cause pain. And that pain stirs up those questions. So we could rattle off all sorts of situations that cause pain in, in the life. Right? Relational discord, natural disaster, physical ailments, chronic illness, mental hardship, mental, uh, mental health struggles that just won't go away. It can be just low-grade, constant, like marital conflict. It can be just the things with the kids aren't going well, just low-grade things at work. It, it can go on and on and on. You face these things all the time. It's just this pain that sits there and festers. And the good news uh, as a follower of Christ is that, one, not only are we not alone, I mean, we all experience this, but God actually tells us to bring those thoughts. And scattered throughout the scriptures, we actually have those cries from, from the psalmist. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide your face from me? How long, O Lord, are you going to forget me forever? Has God's steadfast love ceased? Have his promises come to an end? And we hear it from the very lips of Jesus the Christ himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what we have is God, God invites his people to bring that pain to him, because God wants to enter into that pain. And what we have here in this passage is uh, one of the, just a, a, one of the most striking passages uh, of the New Testament. Um, and and I, I, you know, I feel for myself, uh, I have not paid as much attention to this one as I have uh, personally about the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is weeping and in full agony, realizing, thinking about the wrath of God to come, that he's going to drink that cup. And, and from one angle, you remember as he prays and he falls to the ground, says, Father, if you can take this cup, take it. I don't want it. There's this, from one angle, he's saying, I don't want it. But then at the same time, same breath, he, he lays down his will and says, not my will, yours be done. And Jesus is not sinning in this, Right? So there's a real agony of saying, God, I don't want this, and yet I will trust you, my good Father, and I will entrust myself to you. I just think that's such a golden moment, because faith is not the absence of struggle. Faith is, is going through the pain and entrusting ourselves to God. And we see something very similar on the cross, as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, so today I think we'll, we'll see what Jesus is actually declaring from the cross, as well as, uh, I think this is invitation. 
to bring your sorrows to the man of sorrows. So we jump back and we'll be in the book of Mark this week. Next week, we, we have a guest preacher again. Uh, I'm at a preaching workshop, the Simeon Trust Annual One, um, for most of the week next week. Uh, and then we'll, get, we'll finish off the book of Mark uh, after that. You could certainly preach the whole crucifixion in one sermon. Uh, that would be totally fine. If we did that, I'd, I'd probably call it the messages from Golgotha. Because you, you, have, you have two people speaking and you have two major uh, events uh, miracles that are symbolic, that are also proclaiming. So last time we were in this passage, we saw the darkness and how the darkness speaks, declares God's judgment and salvation. It's the day of the Lord. God brings judgment on the Son and brings salvation through judgment on the Son. Then you have the Christ speaking from the cross. That's what we'll see today. So the Christ speaks, and then we see the curtain speak. That's what we'll see two weeks from now. The curtain is split uh, in two. Uh, that's also speaking of something. And then we see the centurion speak. Truly, this is the Son of God. So I would, I would call it the messages from Golgotha. Today, we'll just focus on the Christ speaking. Uh, let's take a look at, again at the passage, beginning in verse 34. And we'll only read a first quick phrase here. And at the ninth hour. So let's reorient. It's been a while, so let's just Remember what's going on? It's the ninth hour. So this is 3 p.m. Uh, at, at this time uh, of the day. So you remember Jesus had gone through the night of this interrogation uh, that the chief priests interrogated and brought him to Pilate early in the morning. And look up in verse 15. Uh, they had, uh, Pilate had Jesus scourged early in the morning. And if you remember, the scourging is with a whip. Has either pieces of bone or metal uh, at the end of the whip, and it's just to, to whip the person. And oftentimes that would just peel skin off the body. Uh, sometimes people would die from the scourging before they actually were crucified. So this was a very brutal uh, practice. Uh, that was from uh, the soldiers doing that. Uh, you read down uh, verse 19. Uh, they are striking him in the head once again, the, the soldiers. So you have just a lot of beating. Uh, and then in verse uh, 20, they are mocking him. So uh, up in, before the crucifixion even happens, Jesus is already what you would say spent, right, physically, uh, because by the time he's to carry his cross, which would have been custom, uh, he's too weak to do that uh, during that time. Uh, so then uh, at 20, verse 24, the shaming continues. They, they divide his garments while he's hanging on the cross, uh, either naked or near naked, most likely feces and uh, pool of urine on the ground. It, this is all meant to humiliate the person as their dying breath. Uh, and then you see verse 25, it's the third hour. So he's crucified at the third hour, that's 9 a.m. So by 9 a.m. he's already been uh, severely beaten and whipped and uh, is pretty well spent, you would think, physically. 9 a.m. he's crucified. Uh, then verse 29, you have the people going by, wagging their heads at him. Uh, then you have 31, the chief priests and the scribes mocking him. And then you have uh, verse 32, uh, it's those who crucified next to him are also reviling him. So for the next three hours, he's hanging on the cross, because then verse 33, the sixth hour. So it goes from the third hour, 9 a.m., the sixth hour, that's when darkness comes. Right? So uh, and then we, darkness, we have th for three hours, and then we're now at the ninth hour. So six hours, Jesus has been hanging on the cross uh, already at this point. Now, 
hanging on the cross, oftentimes people would die just simply from suffocation because you, you get the nails through the, the wrists here uh, to hold you up, uh, and then you get the nails either through the feet or through the ankles, uh, and the whole thing is you, you're kind of drooping down, and it, it cuts off the, the ability to breathe, and the only way to breathe is to push up on the nail, uh, which is going to be very, very painful, but so you can just quick a, get a quick breath and then you, you kind of slump down once again. So it's, it's an excruciating way to die. Many would die from suffocation. This has been a long ordeal. We're six hours in, and Jesus at this point would be totally spent And what we'll actually see in a couple of weeks when the centurion sees how Jesus breathed his last. He said, that's not normal, because normally people just suffocate and die. But he was able to, to let out one final cry, and there's something unique about that that tipped off the centurion. So... We continue, it's the ninth hour, Jesus spent physically, and look at what it says then. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. So this, this is amazing that Jesus would even be able to cry out at this point, because like I said, you would be suffocating, and you wouldn't really have the ability to, to really get much out. But it's also uh, worth looking closely at those words there. Jesus cried out, or he cried. And lest you don't see it, he says it again in a similar way, with a loud voice. He doesn't say he, he whispered, like oftentimes when you think of someone near their last dying breath, it's a, they, they don't have a lot of energy and just get a little whisper out. It doesn't say that Jesus said this. You actually get this, Mark's trying to elevate this. This is a loud cry from the cross. Now, I'm not an actor, but I always think it's good to just like, try to envision, like, what, what would this have been like? I mean, he's hanging on the cross, hardly any energy, hard to catch a breath, and he's hanging there with a loud voice. <laughs> Eli! <laughs> Eli! Which, of course, means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's good to try to picture yourself there, because you also have to ask, well, like, what, what are we supposed to do with this? What, what is Jesus doing there? Is Jesus doubting? The Father? The Father's care? I, I don't think this is doubt at all. I think this is actually powerful, extreme faith. Is he expressing defeat? I mean, he thought he was on a, a ransom mission or a, a rescue mission to come. Is he expressing defeat? I don't think this is expressing defeat. I actually think this is expressing a victory that is to come. Now, you might ask, well, how do, you, how do you get faith and victory from that statement? Well, if you have a footnote, you might notice that what Jesus says is actually the opening line of Psalm 22. And so he's, he's not just saying anything. He's saying particularly Psalm 22. Now, I don't think that he said the whole psalm uh, out loud. I, don't, I think that would have been very hard physically. But I do think uh, what we see in the scriptures is sometimes that they will say a line to introduce you to the whole message of whatever the passage that re they're referring to. 
Uh, because remember, they don't have chapter and verse numbers during that time. So in order to get the, the reader or the listener to understand the message of the whole psalm here, you just simply need to say the first line and the whole message will come to light. So we might actually be able to do this sort of thing. Uh, anyways, let's take, for example, let's say you, you witnessed a very tragic car accident and you were able to go over by the person uh, that was in the, in the car accident and they're so, somewhat sort of stuck um, and they're, they're severely injured. <clears throat> it looks like they possibly won't make it and the you know, ambulance and, and whatnot have not made it uh, for help yet. Let's say the person, uh, he's, he's sort of in and out of consciousness and you're, you're there to be with him in the moment. And you, you ask him, you say, how, how are you? Do you, do you need anything? I, there's not, not much you can do, but you say, do you need anything from me? And let's say he, he pauses and he looks at you and he says, when peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll. And that's all he gets out. No, he didn't answer your question, did he? He said, do you need anything? He didn't answer it. Well, if you know that song, you know he, he very much answered your question. It's, it's, it's from the song, It Is Well With My Soul. By, by introducing that line, he would be saying, it's, it's well with me. Now, he might be dying. That would be a very powerful message. And you capture that just simply by introducing the line. So what Jesus is doing here is declaring the very message of Psalm 22, which is an extreme call of faith and an extreme demonstration that God is going to be victorious and I will be rescued. So let's go back to Psalm 22. And we'll spend the rest of our time uh, in this just so that we see Psalm 22. Uh, I actually don't intend to like, exposit this whole psalm. Uh, really what I want to do, I, th I thought it'd be good to not only look at the psalm, but also think about lament. Because this is what's known as a lament psalm. And uh, I was extremely, I have been extremely helped by this book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, uh, Daniel Pazoa tipped me off to this one, I don't know, a month, two months ago or something. Um, so I've, this has been an incredibly helpful book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mercy by Mark uh, Vrogop. I think that's how you pronounce it. Nonetheless, the book's uh, really worth uh, checking out. Uh, but lament, it, it, it's, it's biblical, right? Lament is, is to, to weep and to grieve, to express that. Uh, to God, but uh, some estimate around 40% of the psalms are actually lament psalms. We have a whole book called Lamentations in our Bible. So this is very common for God's people to uh, lament. So let's talk about lament a little bit, and then we'll read Psalm 22, try to hear the flavor of what Jesus is trying to proclaim uh, from that cross. So lament, you could define it as prayer through difficulty, or to pray through difficulty, which moves us toward trust, trusting in God. It's very close to Mark Vrogop's definition there. Mostly what I say comes from him anyhow. And so it's, it's praying through difficulty that moves us to trust, to trust in God. A couple things to see here. Uh, this, it, it is prayer. It's, it's, it's praying. It's to God. 
It's not standing afar off from God. It's not just stewing over the pain, but it's actually bringing the pain to God. And it's through the difficulty. It's not waiting until the difficulty is done. It's not covering up the difficulty, but it's through the difficulty coming and bringing that pain to God. And it leads towards trust. So this is not like just a one and done, like we just simply pray or some magic statement and now all of a sudden I trust. But this is the, a volitional choice, um, much like sometimes you volitionally choose to love a family member that's not really being lovable, but you say, I will love them because it's, it's just, love is a choice. This is also, I'm going to choose to trust God. Even though it doesn't look rational right now, even though I don't feel it right now, I'm going to choose to trust God. And so lament is move, it has that movement uh, to bring us to trust in God. There's four common elements uh, that uh, Vrogop uh, lays out in his book. I just use different terminology, uh, but let me give you the four elements that are in lament, uh, generally speaking. So first, it's about remembering your God. Okay, So you're recalling who God is, both his character, he's the holy one, the faithful one, or you're remembering who God is, but also his work, what he's done in the past, and also his promises, what he's promised to be for us. So, so lament has this, this vibe of remembering your God, uh, and part of the key words in that is remembering your God. So when, when uh, the biblical authors lament, there's often this, this connection with this covenant that you have with God. So even Jesus on the cross, right? My God. My God. And so there's this, there's this connection, like, this is my God, and I rem- I'm remembering him. Now, that actually sometimes causes the next piece. The next piece is to repine to God. Repine is, it means to complain, uh, or you could say to remind God of your situation. So when, 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 when the, the biblical authors repine or they complain to God, uh, it usually has two forms. One is reminding God of the situation right now. This is what's happening. And this is how I feel about it. But then two, it's often a question. And two main questions are either why. Why is this happening? Why, why, have you, why are you doing that? Why have you hidden yourself? Or two, how? How long? How long are you going to let this happen? You see it happening. How long are you going to let this go? So those are the, the two main questions that happen. The repining, the, this complaint to God, actually happens because of the first one. God, I know that you're faithful. I know that you're wise. I know that you're powerful. And you're my God. And you've promised to care for me. This doesn't make sense. And so there's this, there's this tension between who God is and my situation. And that causes all these questions. Like, this doesn't make sense. I can't connect these dots here. It's just the part of the paradox that we experience as God's people, right? And so you see this all throughout Scripture, right? Abraham is promised to be that God's going to make him into a great nation. Leave all your land, leave everything you have, and go follow me. I'll tell you where to go, and I'm going to make you a great nation. He shows up, and what happens? There's a famine in the land. And then where's the children so he can have a nation? 25 years later, for 25 years, they experienced the shame, uh, uh, Sarai, of child, uh, childlessness. And so it stirs up all these questions like, wait, I thought we left everything doing exactly what you told us to do. 
And this is what this is what we experience. Or you take Moses. God comes to Moses, says, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses, you know, has this interaction. He's like, no, I can't. I'm not your guy. I'm not going to be the one. And God says, no, I want you to go, and I want you to do that. And so finally Moses said, okay, I'll do it. And what happens when he gets there? The Israelites hate him. Because they initially do what he says, and it gets Pharaoh really upset, so they become, uh, Pharaoh's harsher to them. They say, get out of here, Moses. And then God says, and now I want you to go back to Pharaoh. He says, what, what are you talking about? I, the last time I obeyed you, the people hate me. Now you want me to go back to Pharaoh? Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah, by the way, when, when you get there, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. And there's this tension moment. Like, wait, I thought I'm doing exactly what you're calling me to do, and this is what life brings? This doesn't make sense. Or you take David. Psalms, uh, 2 Samuel 16, if you remember, David is anointed as the king. And what happens for the next several chapters, in the next several years, decades, however long it is? The most powerful man in the land tries to kill him, throwing spears at his head. And where does David live? In the caves. He's hunted, ran out of the country. Now how was that? He was just anointed king. And it stirs up all these questions. The Apostle Paul God comes to him, awakens him to who Jesus truly is. says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to proclaim my name. I mean, what an amazing commission. And then he says, and I'm going to reveal to him how much he must suffer for me. It's this, this, the paradox. We have a God who's faithful, who's good, who's almighty, who's wise, and yet we experience such hardship. And we hear it from the lips of Jesus himself. And so the second element then of lament is repining. It's, it's bringing these complaints to God, reminding God this is the situation. Uh, then it leads to the third uh, piece, which is request. It's requesting God to intervene. Saying, God, this is who you are. You're my God, yet this is what I'm experiencing. Would you change it? Would you do something here? Would you intervene? And then that leads to the fourth, which is to recommit to trust God or to reaffirm my trust in God. Now, that doesn't mean all the trouble goes away. It doesn't mean the emotions have all changed. But it means I'm going to bank everything back on who you are. And you will see through that justice will be served. I might not see it this side of glory, but you will be honored. And you will be praised, and I will praise you. And so it's this recommitment to trust uh, in God. So those are the components of lament. Let's, let's just walk through. Uh, you'll, see, uh, you'll see all these in, in this psalm. It, it's not always super clean where it just moves from number one to number two, but you will notice a progression where number one, uh, it, it starts, and then it starts to fade, fade away, and the repining fades away. So this, you can section this into four sections, uh, this psalm. Uh, the first section has remembering your God and two, uh, repining. And so you see it right out of the gates. My God, my God. Right? This is the remembering. This is my God. And then he jumps right into repining, right into complaint. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God. I cry 
by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. (laughs) Yet you're holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But me, I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me, they mock me. They make mouths at me. They they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet I know that you are the one who took me from the womb and made me to trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. So that's the opening scene. You see there the the, um, remembering God, you are my God, and the just immediate repining. And all the while uh, scattered throughout there is this remembering like you were the one who, who answered our forefathers. You did help them. And so there's remembering who God is. And what you'll notice throughout the psalm, too, is, is many scenes of the crucifixion. If you caught that, they're them wagging their heads uh, at the suffering servant here. And you'll see it more to come. This next section uh, really focuses on repining. Almost the whole thing is complaining uh, to God, except for one statement, which is a request. That's what you see in verse 11. Him requesting, be not far from me. And he goes right back into repining. Because trouble is near. There's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan, they surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like, like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart, it's like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength, it's dried up like a potsherd. that's a clay, a clay pot. My tongue, it sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So here you see the repining and the requesting. And from this point forward, there's, the repining ceases. So that, that is now, we have a movement of the psalm. In this next section, uh, we're going to get the requests coming and then a little bit of the recommitting. So the requests come right out of the gate, one after another, verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my God, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And here we have recommitting. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. 
all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, because he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. And finally, the last section is virtually all recommitting and affirming, trusting in Yahweh. Verse 25 uh, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. So notice there it's, he's saying that he will praise. And then he moves on and names a bunch of other people. The afflicted, they shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Now all the ends of the earth, the, the ends of the earth shall remember, and they will turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The prosperous, they too, the prosperous of the earth, eat and they worship, and even those dying before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself Alive And the following generations, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And what will they proclaim? That he has done it. Well, he's done what? He's brought the deliverance that the suffering servant has asked. Deliver me. And so what you get in Psalm 22, if you were to sum this up, I think the, the psalmist is declaring that God's rescue, it will indeed be proclaimed in every nation, in every social class, in every generation. And in particular, it's God's rescue of the suffering servant in the righteous suffering servant in Psalm 22. God will rescue the servant. And it will be proclaimed to every nation, to every social class, for every generation. And so this is what Jesus here is proclaiming from the cross. Oh, it doesn't look like victory, but God will rescue. And it will be proclaimed to every nation, in every social class, for every generation that God has rescued. And what do you see at the end of the book of Mark? But you see the rescue, right? Risen from the dead, reigning on high. And so that's what I understand Jesus is actually proclaiming. But notice then, lament... Lament requires faith. Lament is not doubt. Lament is not weak faith. Lament is powerful faith because you're facing such hardship and it's saying, I'm going to trust God even though what my eyes see, it doesn't make sense. But I'm going to trust God regardless. And so lament is, is really powerful faith. You know, when, when, uh, when life is going well, trusting in God is, is sort of like maybe walking on a skywalk. Um, you know, like a, a really tall skywalk connecting two buildings or two mountaintops together. So it's really high. Um, so it, it's, it's sort of exhilarating. It's, it's a little bit intimidating, right? Because you're still a little bit nervous, but it's, it's exciting. Because skywalk is fun to walk across, right? For, for a lot of people, right? So when life is good, that's what, that's what faith feels like. When, when life is incredibly painful, it's like God has called you out of the skywalk and he says, I want you to walk on this balance beam from this building to that building. Oh, and put on this blindfold. And don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll hold you. I'll, like, I'll, I'll, I'll hold you on the, on the back 
but I want you to walk across it. And you say, well, Lord, can't we use the skywalk? He says, yeah, sure, not today. And that requires deep, robust, powerful faith. It's easy to walk across the skywalk, but it takes deep faith to walk across that balance beam. And that's what lament, lament is. This is, a, this is an opportunity to express, God, I will trust you through the pain. I will trust you through the tears. And lament, I hope you also see then, is worship. It's not sinful. We should never hear someone like biblically lamenting before God and think that they're sinning against God. Jesus was not sinning from the cross. This is worship. This is trusting God. It may not be comfortable, may make you feel very vulnerable, may be very messy, but it's beautiful. This is, this is beautiful faith. And I think we would say this is honoring to the Lord. Because this is telling God, God, you're trustworthy even though my emotions say you're not. Even though my rational mind right now says you're not, I, I, I will trust you. That, that honors the Lord. That glorifies him. It's also faith building for those around you. When God's people lament in a biblical fashion with faith, that builds faith among the community. I said before, I forget who says this, but uh, I once read that, that sometimes what, what the community of God's people need most is to watch someone suffer well to the glory of God because it builds the faith of the community. And there, there are some folks here who I have watched go through hard pain and through the tears to say, God is going to be good. This is incredibly hard, but I know I can trust God. And bless you, brother. Bless you, sister. That builds our faith. We do not look at you as if you're weak. But that is powerful faith. It's worship. And lament stabilizes our soul because it actually puts us back under the shelter of the Almighty into his wing, right? It's rather than just letting our fears and our doubts and our, uh, bounce around and just kind of stumble, you know, fly around in our head, it's actually bringing them before God and saying, God, here, this is who I am. This is what I need your help. And it stabilizes our soul once again. So, I mean, what do you normally do with your pain, with your questions? You know, sometimes we rage against God. L lament is not rage against God. Lament is coming under God. Rage is when we put God on trial. It's coming out of a place of pride. We're entitled, God, you need to do this for me. I deserve better. That does, that does not help us. It's not honoring to the Lord. It's not stabilizing for our soul. Or sometimes we just despair. We become hopeless. That also is not honoring to the Lord, because that's telling the Lord he's not trustworthy. I have no reason to hope. I know you promise things, but you can't be trusted. And that's not stabilizing for our soul either. Sometimes we just try to ignore it, or because there can be a fear of talking to God like this. I know I will feel that myself, so I just try to move forward. But that's not helpful either, because it's essentially still telling God, like, yeah, you really can't help me in this situation, so I just got to move forward. 
And it doesn't actually stabilize our soul. And of course, sometimes we just try to silence the pain. Right? We try to fill the lusts of the flesh, try to silence the pain, fill our schedule, do anything so we don't have to listen to it. And that, too, dishonors the Lord, and it's not helpful for our soul. This, though, God invites us, come, bring it. Bring me your pain. And God wants to enter into it. So uh, maybe one thing you could do, uh, I got this from Mark Vergop, who um, was doing this in the middle of the night this past week. Uh, and uh, in one of his chapters, he ends with uh, this. He says, one way to start is to simply say, uh, where do you say, Lord, I know that you are blank. I know that you're like this. I know, God, that you are faithful. I know that you're good. But I, it sure doesn't seem like it right now. That's a nice way to get you started. Or you can go the opposite way. Lord, I know that you're not blank. I, I know that you're not absent in this. But it sure seems like it. I sure feel that. Lord, I, I know that you're not weak. But the way this is happening sure feels like it. And it's a way to just get started. Uh, to lament before God. Well, as we wrap up here, I do think that the, all the lament and the Lord lamenting from the cross, uh, I think it is, it's an invitation to us. Beloved, you who are blood-bought, who are under the Christ, bring your sorrows to the man of sorrows, the one who gives us the, the perfect example of lamenting in the, horrific, in the face of horrific circumstances and the one who can truly sympathize with you. You know, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 22 as well. And uh, he quotes it to, to try to encourage the saints of God that Jesus can sympathize with you. He's endured the same type of suffering, and he truly knows what it's like to be in pain and have those questions come up and yet submit them to the Father. So he can truly help us, brothers and sisters. All right, with that, uh, let us go to the Lord's table. Because in the Lord's table, we are reminded that we actually... Um, have reason to believe that God will hear our laments. I mean, what gives us any right to think that Almighty God would listen to us? It's because we've been brought near and be made his children because of the death of Christ on our behalf, to make us right with God once again so that he calls us his very own children, and he will indeed listen to his people.